Price transparency has pushed hospitals to publish detailed information about what they charge for their services, including providing good faith estimates to patients. This initiative is a step forward in the effort to make healthcare costs more transparent and accessible for patients, but it may have value for rural hospitals beyond that. So, how do rural hospitals provide accurate prices to the public while utilizing price transparency data to their advantage? With clear understanding of the numbers, thoughtful comparison, and the determination to advocate for their hospital. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 106 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Well, Rachel, it's rare that we end up with two guests on one podcast, but we are doubly blessed today uh, because our guests are constantly working with rural hospitals uh, on finance and operations to support the long-term viability and to ensure that those hospitals are around to care for their communities for a very, very long time. That's right. One is a return guest and the other is a first-timer, but both are well-versed in hospital finance and payment structures. Our guests today are Marty Ross, Kansas City Office Managing Principal and Director of the Center for Rural Health Advancement at PYA, and Kathy Reap, Senior Manager at PYA. And we welcome back one of our guests to Rural Health Rising, Marty, and welcome for the first time, Kathy. Glad to be back. So to start, uh, we'll start with you, Marty. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at PYA? I have been at PYA for 10 years now. Uh, Before joining the firm, I spent 20 years as a healthcare regulatory and transactional attorney. Um, Decided to use my dark arts for good um, (laughs) to help hospitals navigate uh, changing payment models. Um, And I've done a lot of work in sort of the intersection of regulatory compliance and strategy. So trying to bring a practical spin on what state and federal regulatory agencies are um, serving up on a daily basis, shall we say. And Kathy, what about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at PYA. Well, I've been with PYA for a little over three years, um, focused predominantly on Uh, thought leadership and business development. Prior to joining PYA, I retired for one day from the Florida Hospital Association. I had been there for 27 years. And prior to that, I was with what is now Advent Health in Orlando, left as director of reimbursement. So been involved in hospital finance for a long time. Well, that's great. Well, we are excited to talk to you both today about some issue that others might think are, well, a little boring. We we get excited. Yes, we when do. we start talking. We about, love to get into the weeds. We do. Payments and how hospitals operate and how they can strengthen uh, their models. But, um, you know, at the beginning of every episode of our podcast, we ask one question, kind of start us off. And the question is, why? And we get to know you a little bit better our guests get to know you a little bit better. And Marty, you've already done this once, but we're going to do it again. So uh, what I want to know from both of you individually, of course, is what is your individual why? In other words, what motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do? And in this case, to help hospitals like Hillsdale. So let's start with um, 
Let's just start with Kathy first. Well, I guess the why, um, in terms of what motivate, I, I guess I have to do the why separate from motivation. The why is because there are so many complicated rules and regulations out there. We feel that somebody has to decipher them, translate them, and maybe make them more understandable to the providers who have to implement me. The motivation is, oh, golly gee, when I get up in the morning, maybe there'll be a new reg I get to read. <laughs> well, hey, that's great. We're in good company, though. We are in good company. Marty, uh, what is your why? Um, I think it's how do you get to yes? Because um, having spent 20 years as an attorney, I think favorite word in attorney's vocabulary is no. You can't do that. And for rural hospitals in particular, um, no, you got to get to yes, right? You've got to figure out how to make this work, regardless of how complicated. There has to be, you know, this, this, I'm not doing this very well, but there has to be this um, continuum from simplistic to complex to simple. And so many of us get caught at complexity mm -hmm. uh, that we can't seem to make it over the hill to simple. So that's my burning motivation is to take these complex regulatory schemes and get them to the simple and the practical, not simplistic. Um, but really having digested the levels of complexity instead getting to here's what you need to do, here's how you can do it practically given your resource constraints in both communities. Translate into practice. Right. Nice. Very good. So, all right, let's get started with uh, just getting some definitions out of the way and understanding. Um, first, right now uh, in our industry, we're hearing a lot about price transparency. And a conference that I attended recently talked about ensuring that you have tr price transparency. And if you do not, then, you know, what's going to happen to your organization? Um, so for those who are listening today that may not fully understand uh, what this is, can you help us understand what price transparency means, how it works, and what does the respective hospital uh, do and are required to do and publish to be compliant? And let's start, Marty, with you as the attorney. Um, well, it goes way back. Um, there are actually provisions in the Affordable Care Act that address hospital price transparency. Um, but what we have is a regulatory scheme from the federal government that requires hospitals, all hospitals, including critical access hospitals, uh, to post their charges, so what they list as their prices, as well as their negotiated rates um, by health plan. And so the intention is the consumer can access that information, has to be publicly available, um, and make decisions based on that information. The informed consumer is... Um, Will make wise price. Will make wiser decisions. Um, in addition to, and Kathy, this is where I need you to jump in. But in addition to simply posting prices, which are you know by CPT code and DRGs and all of that, that's a language we only we speak and not the consumer. Um, you also have to post information by shoppable services. Um, mm -hmm. So a specifically identified list of services that. Um, CMS assumes people would be shopping for. 
most of us don't go shopping um, for yeah, uh, a tr- you know, some a sort of thank you bypass surgery, but we right. are going to go shopping for an MRI. So right. that's mm-hmm. what they list mm-hmm. as a as a shoppable service. Alternatively, you can have uh, a tool uh, uh, that that helps. Price, a price, a price estimator. Price estimator. Mm-hmm. Right. They can say, okay, well, I need to have an appendectomy done. And that price estimator is going to pull from multiple, um, you know, multiple different surfaces that are a component part of that surgery and bring it into a price. Mm-hmm. I think the complexity about this is that when we first started under the provisions in the Affordable Care Act, we were required to post our charge masters. And mm-hmm. that was, okay, here's my charge master. I've got it in a format and I've posted it. There wasn't even a requirement for it to be in a specific, you know, Excel or anything else. It was just post your charge master. When they came out with the requirements for the machine readable files, we were asking hospitals or hospitals were being told, I should say, to A, for every item that you provide, post your, um, your standard charge which we're all familiar with. That's basically what I've already posted. But then mm-hmm. you, they defined standard charge in terms of it is your actual charge. It is your, um, your, charge, re, your charge for um, self-pay patients, which for many hospitals, it's one and the same, same. You don't have a discounted rate for self-pay. That standard rate, it's going to depend upon a financial assessment um, of mm-hmm. the patient. And then they wanted all of your payer specific negotiated rates. So if you have five contracts, you are going to be posting your negotiated rates for all of your yeah. items and services based yeah. on those five contracts. Mm-hmm. And then go back in and look at those five contracts and say who had the highest price and who had the lowest. Post your de-identified minimum, your de-identified maximum. So you wind up with this massive spreadsheet, depending on, and I, I will say very honestly, I thought that there were large hospitals who we would be talking massive, but we're seeing smaller hospitals who truly have a number of contracts. They have various terms and trying to translate, this one is a percent of charge versus this one is a flat rate for the item versus this, 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 and this, it becomes um, a a spreadsheet that is very difficult to read and interpret. Um, And then on the issue of shoppable services and the issue of a price estimator, um, with a price estimator, you're actually querying the patient's insurance to find out what their liability is. But with shoppable services, you can't really ask the patient for any identifiable information. It is, I should be able to just go in and put in MRI and find it. Well, I don't know. Did my hospital post it as MRI? Did they post it as magnetic resonance imaging? How do I know how to find it based upon what someone posted? Mm -hmm. So we start off with confusion because there's no consistency in the way we do it. So because it's so complex and so, I mean, it's difficult for the consumer, it's also difficult for the hospital. So how can rural hospitals really validate their data to make sure that we are compliant with all of these different elements of price transparency from a legal perspective and regulatory perspective? Um, I think 
it's, it takes more than one person within the organization doing it. Um, mm-hmm. We actually worked with a hospital that um, the managed care director had been assured that it was all done. It was all fine. Um, when we ran some analysis for them, what she found out was they had only posted Medicare managed care rates and Medicaid managed care rates, none of the commercial products. Mm -hmm. So it truly is sitting down with managed care, with IT, with RevCycle, and going through what have you posted? And do I actually have the individual product names as opposed to just one major payer? Do I have all the products that that payer offers? Have I really captured all of the services I provide? How am I treating pharmacy where my pharmacy rates, unfortunately, change almost weekly because of purchase price? Um, And then the other thing, I think, from a compliance perspective, and we, we need to check for accuracy of the data that we've posted, even as it relates to the charge, because... There, when you actually start looking at some of the rates providers have posted, I don't think so. I don't think the provider really charges that amount. I think it's a typo. <laughs> You're right. They You're entered right. this data in. Yeah. And yeah. someone needs to start looking at, okay, f- let's start off with anything that I've posted as a charge master rate that's over $10,000. Let's look at it and see if it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Next month, maybe I'm going to look at everything over five. Mm-hmm. But if I'm charging in excess of $20,000 plus for 12 lead EKG, I think I got a typo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other issue is, um, before we let Marty weigh in, is, you know, the volatility in the supply chain when it comes to, let's talk about pharmaceutical. Uh, and just to your point, um keeping that information updated, you know, we start talking oncology drugs that take a shift in a 48 hour period, you know, by thousands of dollars, that, that is very problematic for small rural hospitals that don't have much bent strength and that aren't able to closely follow that. That is very challenging. You're only required to update this once a year, but, and I'm going to turn this to Marty for her legal background. Um, Disclaimers, disclaimers, disclaimers. Yeah, that, because so that you're was only a, required to update it once a year. Yeah, and that was the point that I was gonna ask. Then Marty is so I post it because it's so volatile, um, and you know we realize that what I posted even forty eight hours ago is totally incorrect. Marty, what am I doing? Is this is is am I really being transparent? Uh, again, as Kathy noted, the requirement is an annual posting. And thus, at, on your website, when the information is posted, you need to have that disclaimer that says these this information is current as of X date. X date. Um, and may not be current at the time of your query. Yeah. Um, and maybe, and then potentially provide contact information for the individual if they want updated information. You know, so so then I guess let me ask the the question that needs, you know, answered here um, as a consumer. Now that the price data is there, it could be nine months old. How, how do you feel customers are truly using this to make decisions about their care? Or are they or are they? Marty, let's start with you. Well, I 
think we're, we're seeing that most hospitals are using the price estimator tool because you have the choice to either yeah. post mm-hmm. um, the shoppable services or to have a price estimator Global. tool. I think that's what the average consumer is utilizing to secure information. Now, do we, we really don't have data yet in terms of how many times consumers are accessing those tools mm-hmm. and using that information to make decisions. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a wait and see at this point. Um, but you know, it all sounds so great in theory, right? That you know, an informed consumer makes better decisions, but you have to appreciate, you know, when we, we say price in healthcare, that has very little to do with what we actually get paid. Mm-hmm. And with what a patient fact, actually owes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, because there could be, you know, start at the basic, we have a charge master price, but we will typically have a financial assistance policy that generates a discount on that price if the individual is self-paid. And then we have layers of third-party payers, um, sometimes, you know, primary, then secondary insurance, uh, that's going to impact uh, the payment to the hospital um, and the potential liability of the patient. So it's just not the typical stick a price tag on it mm-hmm. um, or, or a, a barcode that you can scan. Um, it's a much more complicated process. So the closest we can get um, to the consumer liability is the price estimated tool. All right. Um, so- the other data is just background. Background and information. And we'll talk about how you can use that background, but it's it's not it's not. In, I don't think it's even intended to be consumer facing. I think the one thing is less consumers are looking at it as opposed to entities working for consumers. Um, there are companies clarify. Uh, if you look at their website, they actually accumulate the data. You can put in your zip code, and they can tell you. Um, what what are the prices that um, um, the range of prices for uh, a hip replacement, et cetera, within your market? Um, and then there's also um, a company that got its got got its start um, really focused on where the best place was for COVID testing, um, but Goodbill and Goodbill, um, I believe it was out of Illinois um, where they began. But I might be wrong on that. But their focus was um, prices for COVID treatments and COVID um, vaccines, COVID testing. And now they've expanded by using the transparency data and other services as well. So as a consumer, similar to going into GoodRx to find the best price for prescription, Mm -hmm. you can go into these various places to find the best price for service. All right. So then let's all right. We talk about the patient, the consumer. Let's talk about the hospital itself. You know, what would be the advantage of a peer posting this information? And I guess if I'm looking at it as as another peer hospital, what advantage do you feel that it gives me as a hospital? I think it depends on if you're talking price versus a charge versus rate. There so you go. Marty, go ahead. Yeah, and really, this conversation now shifts to rates. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So posted, negotiated rates with payers in the marketplace. Um, this is sort of fundamentally resetting the table in terms of the relationship between providers and payers. Um, because 
pre-price transparency, um, we guarded our rates very carefully. Yeah, we and did. Were paranoid yes. that if we shared this information oh. with our quote competitors, we were going to end up in orange jumpsuits, right? Yep. Because that yep. was a violation of the antitrust yep. laws. Um, so we never shared that information. You could never compare, like, hey, what are you getting for United for this versus what are you getting from Sigma? But those conversations were off limits. Now it's all publicly reported data. I can look up what the hospital down the road is being paid by United for the same service. Um, so that truly empowers me as, you know, my hospital's managed care executive. Um, I now have information. And as they say, information is power uh, when it comes to those negotiations um, with individual payers. I think there's a bigger story here. Uh, and this is where I think becomes truly relevant for rural providers is it allows you to compare how different payers are treating different segments of the market. Mm-hmm. We've done some, and the background here, at PYA, we work with a company called Turquoise that has regularly, on a quarterly basis, goes out and pulls down hospitals' negotiated rate information um, and normalizes that into a database. We've layered business intelligence on top of that that allows us to do very specific queries into the data for comparison purposes. So take a very basic example. Uh, we, you can compare uh, the rates for a particular DRG, for example, and you can compare that from payer to payer in the same market. So what's United pay versus Blue Cross Blue Shield. But you can also then compare what is United paying providers in state A versus state B. And then you can compare what is United Pay for the same DRG, what do they pay rural hospitals versus urban hospitals? And some of that preliminary analysis we've been doing um, is showing some pretty um, impactful differences in those rates. Um, cases where, and it's not universal, it's not across mm-hmm. the board in every state the case, but we have identified states where you have commercial payers uh, are reimbursing rural providers below the Medicare physician fee schedule rate. We have examples where commercial payers are paying rural providers 70% of what they're paying their urban counterpart for the same DRG. Yeah. And it's, it's this, again, knowledge is power. Power. Um, And we give the whole conversation of what is, the root cause of the financial challenges rural hospitals face. You know, rural hospitals have a higher percentage of Medicare beneficiaries, so we seem to always start that conversation around Medicare reimbursement. But for critical access hospital, you're being reimbursed, um, well, effectively at 99% of your costs. So in most cases, you're going to be okay on the Medicare business. Mm-hmm. It's those commercial rates that, you know, and, and if I'm in an urban hospital, I'm always playing the offset game, right? I'm offsetting the lower government payer rates 
with the higher commercial rates. And that's right. why you see data saying that average commercial rates are 200% of Medicare, just as an example, because they're playing the offset game. Mm-hmm. You're in a rural facility. You're starting with government payer being your best payer in some yeah. instances. Huh. Um, you're not getting that opportunity to offset no. costs. Right. Um, and so this just, this is sort of opening up these opportunities um, as a matter of public policy to understand how commercial payers are reimbursing rural providers and where their responsibility lies in maintaining access to care in those communities. If they're going to insure the lives of these communities, they're going to take those premium dollars from employers. They have a responsibility to make sure that care is accessible in those communities and for a payer, that means paying a fair price. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about qualifying payment amounts or QPAs. What are those? What is their purpose? And have they resulted in any significant unintended consequences? So appreciate, Rachel. We're switching gears here. Right. We're going mm-hmm. from the price transparency requirements to a wholly separate set of requirements under the No Surprises Act. Mm-hmm. And, and No Surprises Act was sort of one of these wham-bam um, experiences. You know, typically, we, you know, if you go back to the days of HIPAA, for example, and I'm showing my age, but you know, when we did HIPAA <laughs> implementation, you know, it, that started with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of yes, 1996. Sir. And we didn't implement the HIPAA privacy rules until sometimes in 2002, right? So there was a nice glide path to figure things out. No Surprises Act is part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. So December of 20, December of 2020, Congress says, thou shalt abandon the practice of surprise billing and thou shalt provide good faith estimates to self-pay patients. And you shall do all of this by January 1st, 2022 without any implementing regulations that have been actually commented on or final rules. It's all yeah. guidance or interim final yeah. rules. Right. So no, no rules, nothing interim final or otherwise until mm-hmm. July of 21 second. And then we had additional regs that show up in October of 21. So there was just no time to implement this. Everyone right. is playing catch up when it comes to the no surprises act. So to the qualifying payment amount, this is under the surprise billing half of the No Surprises Act. So mm-hmm. and that's, that's, again, part of the confusion of the No Surprises Act is it's two very distinct regulatory schemes under one overarching title. Right. Surprise billing is all about commercial individuals with commercial insurance. And the good faith estimates are all about self-pay patients. So two very different sets of what the No Surprises Act did, um, just to complicate matters even further, it splashed into a pool of pre-existing state regulation. We have 33 states that already have rules on the books about surprise billing. What do you do when a patient comes to a facility that is out of network to their insurance product? How do you bill? How does the provider bill for those services? And so we have th- you know, 33 states were trying to solve this. Of course, states are limited and their ability to regulate because right. they can only impact state-regulated plans and not ERISA-regulated plans. So the self-funded plans are on their own. But so here comes the No Surprises Act into this. 
and says, if you are in a state where there is not a pre-existing standard for determining what the patient liability should be in the case of out-of-network services, then you're going to apply something called a qualifying payment about QPA to determine the patient liability. There is nowhere you can look up the QPA. The QPA is always provided to you as the provider from the patient's plan. So and you provide the service. Not only can you not validate it, but the QPA is based upon what their, their uh, median in-network rate was in 2019, January 31st, 2019. Mm. Trended Suggested forward. for inflation, yeah, trended forward. So it's like you provide the service to an out-of-network patient, you submit the claim to their insurance, for which you don't have a contract with them. They have 30 business days to respond. And part of that response has to be the provision of the qualifying payment amount or the claims you've made. And it, you know, it's never just one service, right? There's always right. a list of services included on the claim, and that's where they have to provide that information. The unintended consequence um, and what and it is something that Congress wanted to avoid is the creation of a standard out-of-network rate um, because the standard out-of-network rate becomes the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. It, it, you are effectively creating a regulated rate. Um, that was not Congress's intention. It simply wanted the QPA to be utilized to calculate the individual's responsibility, their co-payment, their co-insurance. And then it created a separate process um, by which the provider and the plan could determine the out-of-network payment to the provider. But in the regulations, remember those speed-up regulations that CMS published, CMS gave incredible deference to the QPA for purposes of determining the plan's liability to the provider. Now, our dear and wonderful friends at the Texas Medical Association said not so fast. Mm -hmm. They went to court and said CMS is Mm -hmm. not following congressional intent. They Mm -hmm. do not want the creation of a national standard. Mm -hmm. And TMA won. And so CMS had to revise the regulations, publish those in August 22, said not so much deference to the QPA, but we still really like the QPA. CMA says not so fast, (laughs) goes back to court again, Judge again says, CMS, this is inconsistent with congressional intent. You can't give this much deference to the QPA. So here we are in a third round of Mm. the agencies trying to explain how these decisions will be made when you've got a dispute between a plan and an out-of-network provider. And meanwhile, um, Texas Medical Association is still back in court. Um, uh, in terms of what actually goes into calculating the QPA, um, because there has been discussion of perhaps the use of ghost rates when there are rates that are negotiated with a provider for a service they never provide, but Mm -hmm. then using that as a foundation for a QPA for a provider that actually does provide the service. And so they, was it last Wednesday, I believe. Last Wednesday. Last Wednesday, the, they had a hearing, and hopefully we will hear something soon. Hmm. But just, again, to make this even more interesting, because, I mean, 
again, back to the unintended consequences. Right. There are there are some states, and we've heard kind of anecdotal evidence in this regard, but payers who have established contracts, and this is particularly an issue with hospital-based physicians. So our anesthesiologists, radiologists, emergency room physicians, those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, the payers are looking, and now that they've calculated their QPAs in these markets, they're looking at their contracts saying, why are we paying this anesthesia practice 20% more than the QPA? Then, yeah. It's better for us, to, for them to be out of network because, aha, we're just going to get paid the QPA. Yep. So you had a rash of contract terminations. Well, I guess you had a choice. You could either take, take the lower the reduced rate or, or you right. go out of network. And, and so what you're seeing now in, in the um, under the No Surprises Act this independent dispute resolution process, which is the vehicle to determine the rate between the plan and the provider. I mean, it has just been inundated Mm -hmm. with these claims from hospital-based physicians. I mean, it is 10 times what CMS expected in terms of claims being filed through this um, this, this, this independent dispute resolution Mm -hmm. process. So it essentially incentivized the payers to have more out-of-network providers. Yes. Or beat down price. And that's the other thing. I think they're, beat down price is... Yeah, I think yeah. now that we're going to... You know, we're in the cycles. And that, I think we've, right. we've talked about this. Kathy and I is, you know, we're, we're going to hit... This, this has been primarily an issue of hospital-based physicians at this point. Right. Uh, who have provided out-of-network services. I think as we get to the contract negotiation cycles with hospitals, which are typically longer-term contracts, we're going to see price pressure coming from that direction. So again, now back back, back over to price transparency. Right. Uh, now it becomes even more important to utilize that data. Uh, when you've got a payer breathing down your neck saying, no, 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 your rate's too high because the QPA for this market is X, and we're paying you X plus 20%, so we're going to cut your rate. That's when you can say, okay, but wait a second. We have this data available because of price transparency. Right. Let's compare what you're paying everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say not just compare what that payer is paying everybody else, but what are other payers in the market paying? So my first introduction to this was uh, several months ago. And the program that we have for our hospitalist medicine on the inpatient side uh, called me up and, and just started verbally just letting it all go about how he has to raise my rates because of this NSA. And, you know, and I'm like, take a breath, walk me through what is going on. And we met with him again yesterday morning, seven o'clock AM to learn about NSAs. Let me tell you how fun that wasn't not fun. And we spent a lot of time uh, for him to explain how his company took a $10 million hit as a result of this and that, you know, the cost of, of fighting this with claims and appeals, and even though they're winning, he said, you know, 96 percent uh, of those appeals, the cost of litigation and appeals for a new division of his company, a national company, because of this, I think it, it goes back to the issue of the unintended consequences associated. And guess what, ladies? Those costs come right back here on my shoulders because right. if I don't absorb those costs that this company incurs, guess what? They're withdrawing the services to exactly. my hospital. And well, and now I, I am a victim. 
And meanwhile, in the unintended consequences, um, last year, the cost to file a dispute was $50. This year, administrative fee. The administrative, administrative fee. fee. This year, the cost to file is three hundred fifty. For which he tells the, me, and 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 he tells me that's just that's just the filing fee. That's right. right. That's not the fee. cost. <laughs> right. But that's on top of yeah. you're, I mean, for many physicians, the difference between the what you were paid versus the amount that you felt you should get paid. Is not going to be a whole lot more than the three fifty, but yeah. they all add up, and therefore yeah. it does become yeah. real, real money eventually. And it becomes one of those situations that can they afford to file the dispute? Keep doing it, correct? Right, and Do that's it. that's right. So, my cynical perspective on that would be there were way more disputes being filed, and so they made it more expensive so that less disputes would be filed. They, That's what um, that seems actually, like to me. There was actually um, testimony before Congress saying that so many of the um, um, disputes were frivolous. Yeah. And, and can you imagine huh. Chris Lutz, who tells me we're a national company, we have hundreds of hospitals. Can you imagine how quick that'll add up for a company his size? Oh, yeah. For oh, yeah. thousands of disputes, thousands mm-hmm. of disputes. Yeah. Just for my perspective. We're just talking 350 is the administrative fee. That's what you're paying the federal government to maintain. That's just the their fee. Yeah. That's just their fee. Then the independent dispute resolution entity, which we call CIDERS. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that actually decide, am I going to side with the hospital or am I going to side with, with the plan? They add their fee to it. Right. And those yes. run between $400 and $800. Oh if you're gosh. successful, you don't have to pay. But you have to be successful. So if you lose... You paid the three fifty, and then you also are paying the cider fee on top of that. Mm. Uh, and a lot of this, this, this will be. I think this is really problematic. But a lot of the ciders are taking the position that the dispute is each line item yeah. on the claim. Oh my yeah. gosh! Now, yeah. for a hospital, you it's would be million. looking at a million. DRG, a, an inpatient stay for a particular mm-hmm. service. But um, we ran into a scenario with an emergency room physician who um, the first thing they asked him was the cider ask, uh, we need to know the DRG. Well, there isn't one for an emergency room physician on a patient who was never admitted, just seen in the ED. So then you wind up with, they wanted, um, he was disputing the entire claim for the services he provided, but they wanted him to file each service individually. So there would be the evaluation and management. There would be the suturing. There would be this, that, and the other, all Mm -hmm. of these different Mm -hmm. procedure Mm -hmm. codes that were involved. Each carried a different QPA, a different rate, and therefore you dispute 350 bucks per. Yep. Oh my gosh. JJ, I hope you haven't had this experience yet, but we are beginning to see enforcement activity. Um, Primarily in the information gathering stages at this mm-hmm. point. But we've had hospitals that have received requests from CMS um, to produce extraordinarily broad uh, information because one of their non-employed hospital-based physicians reports charged the patient the wrong amount. And that's where the interest is right now. That's what it that's is. what the federal government's interested in, 
is are you overcharging patients? They don't really care about so much about these disputes between plants and providers. Mm -hmm. What they care about is are you charging the patient too much? And so the instances where the hospital-based physician did not charge an amount based on a QPA. Yeah. And you end up with the demand letter coming from CMS to the hospital saying within 10 days, show us how you comply, show us everything you've done to ensure compliance with for every, for every out-of-network patient that you yeah. have treated yeah. in the last six months, um, show us your records yeah. in terms of the balance bill, et cetera. So I do know of one of my peer hospitals that suffered uh, through that, uh, and uh, he was beside himself. First one that they've had to take through, had to get a hold of corporate attorneys, just say, what do mm-hmm. we do here? Can we file an extension? Is this what, how do we get the documentation? A tremendous amount of information that he shared with us as a little small group about be on the lookout because this happened to me. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, uh, this is a situation where these costs to do all of this work is, it shifts. You know, I'm paying for it. And rural hospitals, which are already struggling to make it as it is. In this economy that we're dealing with, with rising labor rates and with supply chain and inflation, and the list goes on and on, with payers paying us less, now the burdens that are cast upon us makes it almost impossible. And and that is, whether unintended consequences or not, they are significant and grave consequences to the viability of some of our rural hospitals. And when I hear a national company tell me yesterday morning that the impact to their organization, which they have hundreds of hospitals in which they have thousands of doctors, was $10 million in total uh, that they're forecasting for this. That's a game changer. And that is unfortunately a break point for a lot of companies that are mom and pops. So uh, we could talk about this for a very long time. Unfortunately, Believe it or not, ladies, we are out of time for our podcast today, and we'd love to have you back on to talk about uh, negotiated rates, some of the heart of the issue with hospitals as it relates to how we're getting paid and the payers and and how we're challenged with that. I'd love to have you back on to talk about those things, Um, and I really appreciated the time that you took to educate us. And this podcast is heard nationally, so the information that you share with us, you know, a lot of our uh, rural counterparts across this country uh, are going to start right now walking into these types of events, and they need to be prepared. And so I believe at PYA, you provide guidance and support, uh, and we want to give you a shout out for that. And also to say, reach out to our friends at PYA because uh, we certainly do. Uh, there are experts and our friends, and I know that we'll put your contact information in the body of our uh, in uh, information notes. in the show yeah. notes. Uh, and again, we'd just love to to be able to talk to you more, and we'll do that in the very near future. But I want to thank you for bringing us you know, your industry insights here. It's very valuable uh, to make our hospital stronger uh, and to be able to know what are we facing in the, in the weeks, months, and years ahead. So thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Thank you. And before we close, we love to do a fun segment with each of our guests. And uh, 
I'm not sure if you're even from rural communities, but we're going to find out here in just a minute. Um, what we like to do is because this is Rural Health Rising, uh, we often ask the question about your rural experiences. So, um, you know, we did have we did have Marty here last time. So, are we going to bypass on? Our, yes, we're going to give her a free it's pass. Kathy's turn. So, this Kathy, time. it is only up to you. Uh, since you're the first timer, and we want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life. And listen, we've heard it all. So share with us if you've experienced anything that's just very unique to rural. Well, I don't know that it would be unique by any means, but I was fortunate enough um, to get to spend my summers. Um, and that was back when, you know, we had three months off from school. Um, but <laughs> I, I got to spend my summers with my grandparents. Um, uh, they had a farm in Georgia, um, cows, peaches, produce, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, the trips to the farmer's market to drop off truckloads of, peaches or going to the sales with the cows, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the thing that I have to say from a memory perspective is going back up a number of years ago with my soon-to-be husband and my father um, and going to the farmer's market and having my husband provide the comment, the road to the farmer's market was very curved. And things fall off of small trucks. <laughs> my husband's comment was, it looks like vegetarian roadkill. Um, <laughs> that <laughs> so is pretty that funny. Was, that is good. That would be, you know, I was so used to it as a kid, but yeah. seeing it through his eyes was totally different. That is awesome. Well, the rip to the tomato and the squash. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us today. We look forward to having you back again on Rural Health Rising. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe. Stay healthy and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. 